This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. As we get to the 90th episode of Spooko, which Mm. today's episode is... We can reflect on some of the things we've learnt about horror movies in the past. Will we, though? Like, oh, we just, we'll get straight into it. No, but one of the interesting things about horror films is mm. if they're successful, usually they're successful on the back of having no budget, so the studio's like, fuck, we need to have a million sequels. After about two or three sequels, they run out of ideas in the future. They're like, we need a prequel. And yes. when I'm talking about, you know, the episodes three and four of film series, these are the ones that end up on Shutter because they can't afford. <laughs> Fuck you, Shutter. <laughs> they yes. can't afford the first or the, the initial <laughs> sequel. But okay, so if we were to do a prequel mm. of Spooko, yes. we would find that Peach and I started out in our sort of broadcast career as mm. presenters of a afternoon show on FBI Radio, the same radio station in Sydney that puts out Spooko. Yes. And I'm super excited that on the pod today, we're joined by the man who currently hosts the afternoon program, but not yes. only does he do that. So he's not just the host of Arvo's on FBI 94.5 or FBI Radio com he is also the host of a really sick new podcast that red bulls put out called if these yes. walls could talk about i guess the histories of the super diverse and inclusive dance floors in sydney really worth checking out if you haven't already but most importantly beyond all of that mm. he is the voice of the disclaimer at the start of every single spooko <laughs> episode his name is al grig he's back on the show after maybe a 70 episode break al Welcome back to Spooko. Thank you. So good to be here. So nice to join you guys again. Hey, you know what? And you do a lot of things. You are mm. the ultimate. I don't know if this is like, like a late term. Like respectfully. Well, Peach, <laughs> okay. Peach. Or are we getting there? Like, Peach, we're getting there. We're getting there. So Al is the ultimate slashy. So broadcasting aside, it's why he sounds good on this pod, obviously. So all of that aside... Mm. Al is a musician. Like, I don't know. Like, Al, you do a lot of things. Would you say, if you if you go to an airport or whatever and you have to list your trade, do you say musician first? Is that number one? No, I don't ever say musician. Or go guest. <laughs> Voice of a Spooko intro, mainly. Uh, no, I, I feel like I, I've never really made money off. I feel like when they ask you what you do for a living or like your occupation should be the thing that you make money doing. I've never made money doing music. So even though I do a lot of it. So um, I usually just write, you know, like, Whatever. When I was working in a shop, I was a retail assistant and then now I'm like music manager or whatever, you know, event programmer or something. You know what's crazy? Because you do so much music and outwardly it would seem incredibly successful. And fuck, that sounded like something different. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, so started out in Red Riders, currently in Palms and Straight Arrows. Both bands have been played on Henry Rollins' radio show, which is an insane achievement, especially for two Australian bands. Yeah, It's crazy that you've, you've done all these things, but... The bands itself, I imagine, make money, but you don't make money from those bands. Yeah, yeah. So the bands are like self-sustaining or whatever. We, we've just never really taken any money from 
the bands. I've kind of always had day jobs and it just seemed like easy to keep doing that. But but yeah, uh, do not get into music if you want to make money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, our podcast is about how specifically not to make money because fuck <laughs> capitalism. So do get into music. Look, it's the self-hating capitalist podcast. It's good. <laughs> but, 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 okay, so I, I want to delve into that a little bit because there's a romantic notion then about this idea of touring in a van. For people who've never done it before, for people who've never been in bands before, for people like us who work in day jobs in offices, and I mean you too now, but obviously people who've never toured in a van before, have you ever done that classic go to another country in a van with a band and just tour the country? Yeah, I mean, we've done it with Straight Arrows. We've done it a a bunch of times. We've done uh, it through America twice and through kind of Europe twice. And it's sort of, you know, like anything, like there, it's definitely, there is a romance to it for sure. You do have to be a certain kind of personality that can put up with just like sleeping in incredibly random places. And you do kind of, yeah, you have to enjoy the sensation of like drifting through somewhere. You kind of have to give up any um, expectation that you're going to see anything of value in any of the places apart from like the place you're staying and the venue you're playing in. But if you're kind of okay with that and just kind of happy to just like drift through the world, then touring can be like super romantic. And if you like your band, like if you all get along, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> so just flipping that on the side, on its side, or in fact, you know, a full 180. Mm. Touring in a van, you've done it a couple of times and you've done it in the States. Were there ever moments when you thought or you had a realization that, wow, you guys are super vulnerable to money issues or petrol issues or if anyone wants to take advantage of you. Yeah, I mean, look, I guess we've always been pretty lucky in that, you know, we all kind of have like our own like financial kind of security. But uh, Owen from Straight Arrows does like to really run things on a pretty tight like ship and likes, <laughs> the, and likes the tour to pay for, the, for itself, you know what I yeah. mean? So that we're not like putting money into it. So yeah, that you are often like, at the end of a show, like trying to sell a bunch of T-shirts to people so that you have enough, you know, petrol money or gas money if you're in America <laughs> to get to the next show kind of thing. So it's kind of, it's constantly a self-sustaining kind of thing. Or like if you've done all right on the merch table, then all right, cool, we can stay in like a hotel today or if maybe we haven't done so well, a hostel or maybe if not so well, you're on stage asking the audience if somebody there has somewhere that you can stay for the night. So, yeah, it's like... Yeah, there, yeah. There's definitely a there's definitely a point though where you get to an, I think you get to an age where you're like, I think maybe I'm too like old to be just like crashing on somebody's couch. And the last tour of Europe that Straight Arrows did was definitely like a little bit more. Um, I mean, you wouldn't call it. It's not, it was definitely not luxe by regular people's standards, but it was luxe by Straight Arrows standards. And they're like, we had we stayed in like hotels or hostels most of the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited about this mm. because today we're doing a film that is, well, it's put out by A24, so we're back to like supreme indie horror quality. It is a very chilling film about, I guess, how vulnerable a touring band can be. And look, one more question before we talk about the film today and go into the synopsis, Al. Mm. You know, you, you've played in a couple of bands, one of which, Straight Arrows, definitely has a sort of punkier vibe and has been on some punkier sets. Have you ever had to play to or played in shows with like skinheads or those guys with the the white shirts and the boots? Uh, no, not really. I feel like, you know, um, there's that kind of divide in punk music of like, there's they call it chum. And I'm, I'm definitely like 
not punk enough to really be talking about this. <laughs> but it's like they have like they have like chain punk and egg punk, and egg punk is sort of more like I think feel like my basic understanding is like stuff that's influenced more like by Devo. It's a bit quirky. It's a little bit like oddball and. And, you know, I feel like Straight Arrows is definitely more of like an egg punk band. So you skank then... to egg punk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. There's heaps of skanking going on. Um, and then I feel like chain punk is a bit more like you're kind of hardcore, a bit more abrasive, a little bit more like, you know, um, much Run around in circles. Vibe. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So I feel like Straight Arrows have kind of always moved in like a little slightly different punk circle. Weirdly, the, one of the first red... Sorry if this has become the Al Greek reminiscing about <laughs> no, his so last show. But weirdly, the first time that um, my old band Red Riders played in Melbourne, we played at a place called the SB, And I think that during the day, if my memory is right, it was like they were kind of having like a bit of like a hardcore festival through the venue. And we were like the most like sort of like weenie indie band and I remember just like as the day was dragging on I was like are we actually playing in this venue so our first show in Melbourne we walked up on stage and the room was just like full of what I had deemed in my brain as like bikers and I was just like (laughs) we're like oh my god we're like the twist little like indie pop you know skinny boys from Sydney kind of thing and it ended up being an awesome show actually because I was I think I was on stage I was like we were really nervous about playing and then someone in the audience is like Melbourne fucking loves you, man. And I was like, oh, Aww. cool. All right. <laughs> it was actually kind of the opposite of Green Room, really. <laughs> well, this is, this is the movie we're doing today. So today we're doing a film about how vulnerable a band on the road can be, particularly if they're an egg punk band playing to chain punks. Today we're doing an A24 horror thriller from 2016 called Green Room. I can get you guys a solid gig. Matinee tomorrow, doors at one, you guys are on a three. Gentlemen. You're trapped. Things have gone south. It won't end well. You can't keep us here, man. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. Shoot who is left. Let him bleed. Get ready to run. Here we go. Careful now. This will be over soon, gentlemen. For the longest time, one of my most vivid fantasies was that Spit Syndicate, for some reason, would be like, oh, shit, <laughs> our supporter had to fall down. <laughs> Peach and Shaq, you guys had that set that you like that, <laughs> that you were using for a few years. Like, could you possibly do us a huge solid? Like, <laughs> we've got four dates to get done Thursday through, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Thursday through Sunday up the East Coast. Do you think you could do us the biggest favour ever? And we'd be like, oh, I guess we could. But watching this preview and seeing Patrick Stewart as a neo-Nazi bad guy, I'm like, oh. Oz Hip Hop itself is a very monocultural kind of place, or certainly was 10 or 15 years ago. And so maybe we dodged a bullet, Shag, by never having my touring with Spit Syndicate. <laughs> well, look, uh, there's, there's so many things I, I, I want to chat about before we get into this. But first of all, number one, so glad to have Al on the show because this film feels authentic, but it's good to have someone who's actually done this 
to like to help us take us through and let us know where they've got it right, where they might have got it wrong. Mm. The second thing is doing my due diligence now on the directors, double clicking their name and just scanning their Wikipedia page just in case there's a controversy Ooh. or legal issues. Uh, this is directed by a dude called Jeremy Solnia. His Wikipedia page is just his filmography, so it sounds like he's squeaky clean, so feel okay about this. One more thing I want to say about this is you mentioned Patrick Stewart there. I think, and I, I honestly think you could do it with any prestigious white actor, you could cast them as an evil neo-Nazi in a film and it would be amazing casting. Like seriously, yeah. like Matt Damon, cast him as Ooh. awesome. Matthew McConaughey, don't even think about it. <laughs> like, you know, like... Dustin Hoffman would be a man. Like, I don't oh, know. It's like, just cast, like, it's just the thrill mm. of casting against type, casting someone famous yeah. against type, being like, oh, whoa. And it's like Patrick Stewart, come on. Like, mm. as if Patrick Stewart, but uh, like him as a neo Nazi, how terrifying is that? But I've done zero acting. Presumably, meanness is the easiest thing to act. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm so pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> the, usually the way high-ranking neo-Nazi is portrayed in films is they're super polite until maybe the final act when they let a slur go. Mm. And then it's like, no, they were a neo-Nazi all along. They weren't just a really polite old man. And that's kind of how he plays it in this, but still. But yeah, so one more thing before we get into this. So I, I wanted to go to extra effort here because this is honestly one of the best. Spit Syndicate aren't coming on as a surprise, are they? Because that would be... <laughs> well... <laughs> I've got an email right here from <laughs> saying they're in a bind. <laughs> no, but this is honestly one of the best horror films of the last couple of years. I wanted to do it justice. Mm. So not only have we got Al on the show to help take us through, mm. but I just wanted to just bring to life just a little bit about this film because it, it is absolutely a horror film. It's not, there's no bad guy except, you know, prejudice and I guess... The, the, the like ultra right wing groups in the states, but listen to this little description of the violence in it that uh, the AV Club gave in its review in 2016 when they gave it an A minus, which again is like a really good score for a horror film. Characters don't get killed in a Solnia movie; they get annihilated. The violence in Green Room is swift and hideous, demonstrating the damage a bullet, a knife, a set of canine chompers even a box cutter can do to the human flesh. And when the actors respond to that violence, they do so not with gritted teeth steeliness, but the full pain and panic one might expect from any ordinary person caught in this situation. I rewatched this film this week. Al rewatched it last night. Al, you texted me last night. And were you surprised rewatching it just how awful the gore in this film is? Yeah, 100%. It is actually so visceral. But I think because the whole movie is so believable and the way it's presented is so believable I think that's kind of partially why it's so kind of harrowing and dark because it's like oh yeah like that is a probably a very realistic thing that you know that is very realistic portrayal of how you would look if a dog was attacking your throat or something you know like it's very yeah intense and also I was watching with my boyfriend who hates 
like doesn't really like horror movies as well. And so I, you know when you're you're equally you feel equally like am I like really disturbed that I'm watching this? And you're like so repulsed, like why would you be watching this? How can you enjoy this? Um, so yeah, I, was, I, was, I think I was also super conscious because he was there as well. I love that you have to defend the film as you're watching it. <laughs> yeah. Why did you like that bit? It's like oh, I didn't. <laughs> it's not. It's not that I liked it, yeah. but you, like to Al's point, it's like this is the quagmire that every horror fan gets to, to into it. So it's like, am I a bad person for being into this? Like, you're grossed out by the horror, but it's also satisfying when a horror delivers on gore. Mm. Like, not in, a way, not in a way where it's like, I wanted to see that, but it's like, oh, they went there. Yeah. Like, they could have pulled the punch, but they did not. They went there. And the movie is that much more terrifying and devastating because of it. All right. So... This film, this film is uh, set and shot in Portland, Oregon. Al, did you tour through Portland? Was it a scary place? Um, I've never been through Portland, actually. But we've come, we came. I think the closest we came was probably like Davis, California, or something like that. Yeah. Um, the, you know, America is kind of wild because it's so. It is kind of so populated, like right across the country. So I think you can often be like you're going along a huge stretch of highway, but there's sort of probably not far from any point there are you know people living in you know, around. So, yeah. But I, I was, it's sort of interesting that it was set in Portland in a way because I always think of Portland as like, you know, Portlandia, mm. home of like, you know, hip, hipster mecca kind of thing. Everyone's friendly and green and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of interesting that it's set there actually. All right. So starts with a punk band called The Ain't Rights. So I'm going to stop right there and be like, believable name for a punk band, The Ain't Rights. Yeah. Uh, look, that's actually, the name stinks a bit based on the themes <laughs> of the film. <laughs> <laughs> in fairness mm. actually, actually you know I never thought about that that's actually really funny yeah, yeah that's right? shit okay. I don't like that right I didn't pick up on that there's four members of the band including maybe from Arrested Development Pat, Sam, Reese, and Tiger and they're travelling the Pacific Northwest now at this point, Wikipedia jumps like half an hour into the film, but it's really was important it to know. In the south or <laughs> no, no, it's, but they do because it's an art horror film. They do a really good job of setting up the band and what life's like. So, they wake up on like a stretch of highway, not near really anything, next to a cornfield where they've all woken up. Two of them see on their phone that there's a car park 11 miles away. So they get on a bike ride there, siphon some petrol or gas out of one of the cars, drive back to put the gas into it so they can then drive to the next city to their next sort of appointment. And Dude. they then drive to... So we're getting their... these feelings of vulnerability and, like, exactly. no from escape. Exactly. Yeah. From the get-go, it's like there is no security in the, the way they are living at the moment. And it's exhilarating if you're thinking romantically, but if it's a horror movie, it's fucked up. <sighs> anyway, so they go and travel to a city where they're staying with, like, a friend of a cousin. And, again, I, th this feels like that classic thing where you're on the road where... Did you ever have to stay in, like, someone's room or someone's house of a friend of a friend where uh, you all just slept on the floor? 100%. That's, like, a really common thing. I think this is kind of why it feels really believable as a musician and in that kind of, I guess, in a similar kind of DIY kind of world is that that's, like, so relatable. We've stayed in so many houses from... Because often in America, like, if the if some, someone... I guess the way maybe the, that kind of punk community works is that there's somebody in each city who, like you know, they're often kind of small little cities or small places where there's like a person who puts on all the punk shows. So they're like the promoter in that town. And then they'll like put the band up. They'll probably give you dinner or something. You're usually sleeping at their house or a friend of theirs house or some 
room or accommodation that they have access to. So that's like a very common thing that, that you'll just stay at the place that the person who's putting the show on sort of lives. Or like, I feel like in, when we played in Davis, California, we were literally on stage, like, does anyone have, know somebody who can stay for the night? And somebody in the audience like <laughs> took us in. And that was actually like, Americans are like so beautifully generous, like, but sometimes you're like, oh, I wish you just said, no, you don't have anywhere to stay. <laughs> because we, um, that, that, that particular place, I slept on a couch that had been like torn apart, obviously by a cat. Like all of the stuffing was sort of like coming out of it. And sort of, it was right next to the kitchen and they had like a compost situation, but it was in like a glass jar. So I'm like lying on my bed <laughs> on this like ripped up cat, ripped up bed. And then across from my, in my line of vision is just this like, glass jar full of like decomposing like vegetables <laughs> and in the bathroom the like i remember the bathroom sink was like cracked and so like water was just sort of trapped in there so it was sort of like mold like it was like half of the sink was just like moldy <laughs> and then like the other half is like usable so yeah i mean it's like that's like uh, utterly sort of believable oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, look look i mean i know we're a fuck capitalism podcast but that is our commune future so <laughs> <laughs> let's let's enjoy the trappings of capitalism while we can um so so they go and stay at this like cousin friend pl- person's house there's like a little bit of antagonism because he has the full-on spiked gelled mohawk and the ain't rights are basically like he's like a poser punk he's not a real punk and he gives them this interview for his like local zine and i think local radio station where he asks them and this is important and i'll just put this out there he asks them what their desert island band is and they sort of are like oh maybe it's sabbath or whatever if i can get dio and um, what's his uh, name? Aussie. Aussie as well in there. But anyway, so they, they came to this town for a show. Uh, the show gets cancelled and he's like, but I've got a backup show for you. It is at a neo-Nazi skinhead bar, so don't talk politics, but it's 350 bucks. It's a matinee, so you can just get in and get out. And it's with a band called Cowcatcher, who to me, that, that to me is like the most believable punk yep. band name I've ever heard in my life. Look, we like, I'm not sure how many gutter mouth shows we went to, but I think it was three. <laughs> <laughs> like, all those SoCal, Southern Californian punk band names. So they go, they go to this place. It's at a like it's at basically a, like a barn in the middle of like a forest. There's not even paved roads. There's lots of dudes and girls with like tight jeans rolled up, big boots, suspenders, the whole and like shaved heads. Like it's a creepy place. They're all a bit like, what the fuck are we doing? As like a bit of a fuck you to the crowd, they open their set with a cover of Nazi punks "Fuck Off" from the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> The, the audience is like, what? That's a classic move of like, this is a great idea, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic first thought. Like, like, how funny would it be? But I also love the fact that it's like, yes, we will go and play and entertain these neo-Nazis, <laughs> yeah. but we'll insult them yeah. slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll take their money. <laughs> <laughs> we'll maintain our dignity. But they go ahead with the show anyway, and to Al's point, because they're a chain punk band and they are super hard, and you know the lead singer just like screams his vocals. The skinheads get super into it, and there's a very A24 scene where they start a song with like, dun 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 dun, and then all of a sudden, 
the whole set slows down to maybe like, you know, 1400 frames per second. All the skinheads are like pogoing and, you know, moshing in like super slow-mo. The band are playing in super slow-mo and they replace the punk song with like a really atmospheric slow song. It's quite a beautiful moment. Yeah. Don't really know what it means. Like watching it again, I'm like, I don't know what they're saying with this, but mm. it's a great, it's a very, it's a very art film moment. Is it the kind of thing, I, I kind of took it as more, you know, that moment when you're at a show and there's like almost like this like, communion between like the band and the audience and it's like it's I guess they're uh, trying to reach their kind of uh, for one of a better word spiritual level of like you know music and communal experience or something you can kind of see already it's sort of set up like a drama film and it feels realistic so anyway so they go ahead with the show they win over the skinheads during their set Pat notes two young women, Emily and Amber, looking disturbed and being shepherded out of sight. So as the band is about to leave, and, and it's all very professional. They're given their 350 bucks. They've got their gear ready to go. The guy's like, follow me, get it. And like, it's that moment in every horror film where it's like, they were about to get out. They were, they were so close to getting out, getting back on the road, and their lives would have just returned to normal. Sam, who is maybe from Arrested Development, is like, I forgot my phone. Pat, one of the band members, is like, I'm going to go back into the green room to get it, where he stumbles upon Amber and the members of Cowcatcher standing over the body of Emily, who's been stabbed to death by Worm, who is one of the, like, one of the venue and, you know, one of the neo-Nazi sort of leaders, right? And she's just got, uh, like, a, like, a switchblade or a pocket knife just sticking out of her head. I don't know how you stab into someone's skull, but it's just sitting, like, sitting in her head and... Very matter-of-factly, and at this point, Pat's like, oh, fuck, I've seen this. He gets out, he tries to leave, and the, the, the whole venue are like, what the fuck? How did you let them back into the green room? One of them's like, the door wasn't locked, and they're like, okay, no one can leave. Calm down, but no one can leave. Pat tries to call the police as he flees, gets to the police as there's been a stabbing. Someone grabs his phone, and bar employees, Gabe and Big Justin, capture the rest of the band and put them into the green room with Amber <sighs> and the dead body as well. And at this point, keep in mind, at this point, they're like, hey, look, we just, shit's gone down, but we just want to make sure everyone's got their story straight. You'll be okay. You're safe in here in the green room. The cops are on their way. Don't stress. So at this point Dude. still... They're very much gaslighting them to be like, don't worry, things are okay. Are they gaslighting them or just misleading them? Well, um, yeah, actually, good point. Like, it, Catherine, it, it, Catherine, Catherine Lumby, who's, like, the best and smartest person of all um, and was advising the NRL on gender and, and, and he's amazing, is like... Uh, the term gaslighting has been let out of the laboratory. And I was like, no, I think I'm guilty of like, being like, anything bad involving a lie is gaslighting. And I'm like, no, maybe, maybe that's inaccurate. Now, while they're trapped in the green room, the police do arrive. Mm. So, so Gabe, who's one of the sort of head employees, pays one young skinhead to stab another to create a cover story for the police who responds to Pat's call. And he's basically like, here's 300 bucks for doing this. If you do any time, we'll double it. And so these two skinheads just like grab each other by the head and they're just like, and sort of just like one stabs the other in the chest. And then he lifts up his shirt and you see the stab wound. It's very, very briefly, but you're like, oh, so this is a movie where we're going to see violence when it happens. The police come. At, At this point, Patrick Stewart shows up. His name's Darcy. He's the leader of them. We still don't see him from the front. We only see him from the rear of his head. And he's basically like, 
good evening, gentlemen. How are we going to solve this? And like, but before the police come, he's like, let's all get our story straight. And when the police come, he's like, yes, there was a bit of an incident. Go with them, boys. And is sort of like, let's handle this here. Mm. Now, in his mind, what's interesting about this is, in his mind, they could have just let the band go. And then Worm could have just gone to prison because they called the cops and Worm would have gone to prison because they would have been like, there was an altercation, he stabbed a girl. But, you know, that's the thing. Like, no one rats on nobody else or whatever. Mm. But because they've confined the band, now Darcy, Patrick Stewart's like, oh, fuck, now we've got a problem and now we have to deal with this band. Ugh. Gosh, I'm so glad we didn't go on tour with Spit Syndicate. <laughs> Patron Chuck, here's $50. <laughs> 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 would you stab me or would I stab you? Oh, no, surely it'd be the Oz hip-hop nerds with their very expensive sneakers and very cheap shorts that would do the step. Like, <laughs> we would be off. We would be just sitting in the green room. God, like, oof. my like my, my cowardice and survival instincts would kick in and be like, you don't have to worry about me saying anything when I'm being threatened. <laughs> so anyway, so Darcy at this point decides, okay, well, you fucked up, but now the band needs to be eliminated. He also arranges for Cowcatcher. So Cowcatcher were supposed to play, but they end up cancelling the show. Cowcatcher go home in a half. Darcy doesn't want Cowcatcher being like, there was this band playing here and now they've all disappeared. So he sends them away with poisoned heroin, which is a thing he just has lying around, while more skinheads assemble at the bar, waiting until nightfall to kill the band and Amber. I'm surprised at the amount of sort of music industry admin that's been included in this film of like, <laughs> like you know, bands getting canceling paid. shows and you know, bang, bang bands and you know, stuff. Like, oh, okay. Let's keep this yeah. in the movie. Because they, no, they no, reschedule the show, right? They'll even like bother to like, yeah. oh, it's rescheduled till Sunday. <laughs> Free drinks from yeah. <laughs> like we do see a lot and also there's a there's a point they make a really big point about Darcy Patrick Stewart's character where he really likes to do everything by the book so, so he calls his insurer band, he's like yeah. he calls his no. insurance broker to be like oh god can you take a look <laughs> at the, my business interruption policy <laughs> <laughs> but when the band have gear in the hallway he's like this is a fire hazard get it out of the hallway we got it you know like mm. he, it's very much like he's a man who has to do things by the book so while the band is in the green room and they're all basically getting more and more anxious and more and more paranoid about what's going on and rightly so there's this chilling number of scenes that don't really appear in this wikipedia entry where darcy and the crew slowly organize how they're going to kill them and then set them up so it looks like an accident and so as as you're watching the band being like it's okay we can get out of it you're also watching patrick stewart very kindly being like we'll dump the bodies here and we are like that's the best i can do but like it's (laughs) <laughs> it's so scary and it's so completely fucked up. So anyway, while they're in there, the band overpowers Big Justin, who's in there with them, and holds him hostage, taking his pistol and box cutter from his pocket. They negotiate through the door with Darcy, who asks them to surrender the pistol. There's a moment where they're like, why would we give away the gun? And Darcy's like, we have... I'm going to stop doing his voice. But he's basically <laughs> like, we've got heaps of guns out here. We don't want this to turn into a gun battle. We want to resolve this in a way where no one gets hurt. And they're like, cool, we'll give you the gun, but you, we'll keep the, the bullets. And he's like, hey, look, even better. No one gets hurt that way. So they decide to surrender the, the, the pistol. 
But when they open the door to give the pistol away, the men attempt to force their way in and start just like slashing at Pat's arm with machetes to the point where where Pat pulls his arm back in. His hand is just merely sort of holding on by a thread. He's got these like (laughs) massive like wounds (laughs) in his arm and and he's just screaming as you would. And as was described in that article (sighs) that I, you know, mentioned before, he's just screaming like, my arm has just been slashed by machetes. Like I did not wake up expecting for this to happen to me. It's so completely fucked. They managed to close the door. However, Pat loses the gun and is seriously injured. Big Justin attempts to break free, leading Reese. So Reese is in the band. He knew wrestling. So he's got him in a chokehold. And at this point, Amber, who is the friend of the girl that was killed, grabs the box cutter. And I don't know what they're like, we've got to kill this guy because like he's going to try and kill him. I don't know why she does this. And it's probably the most shocking moment in the movement. She just takes the box cutter goes to the base of his chest and just slices all the way up. So his chest just opens, exposing the organs underneath. Yes. Yeah, it's brutal. That is a really unexpected moment, don't do, you reckon? Yeah, oh, totally. I do think it's more chilling because it's like, it's almost just, it's so like easy. Like, it's not like yeah. she's like hacking at it. It's just like, no. and it's just all opens <laughs> up. It's, so... it's like a zipper undoing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so gnarly. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, they're like, we're fucked. Like, and this green room has no windows. The roof is like heavy. They're like, we can't get out of here. What the fuck are we going to do? But they notice the floorboards, there's something underneath. So they tear up the floorboards and they discover a drug lab under the bar that's making heroin. And they're like, oh, fuck. Okay, so this isn't just like a Nazi skinhead place. We're actually being trapped in like a drug den. And now we know about the heroin. It's like we're doubly dead. Uh, The only exit is locked from the outside. So they decide to give themselves some improvised weapons. So it's actually quite clever. They go to the halogen lights above they take them out smash them so all of a sudden now they have like a makeshift sort of sword or at least sort of spear they just get whatever they can and uh, they go out into the bar how's my dude with his machete arm they've taped it up with electrical tape I love that that's actually a very important like I feel like the touch of gaffer tape for a live band is like so every you know gaffer tape is always yeah you solve everything with gaffer tape always as a band so it's kind of amazing that they tape his arm up with gaffer so I used to live with Al and uh, I still have bags of his I was was fucking there (laughs) yeah but us for a long way but it's like I still have bags of Al stuff in cars and (laughs) sheds in my house and every single one of those bags has like a roll of gaffer in it every single one you need gaffer. <laughs> so they go out into the bar and they're like, we're going to fight our way out. At this point, neo-Nazi Clark unleashes an attack dog, which goes straight in for Tiger, knocks him over. And it's so fucked because it's like you see attack dogs in films all the time, but it's rare you see just how vicious oh, they are. So God. this dog literally bowls over Tiger and goes straight for his neck and starts just tearing up his dog. Yeah. And so within seconds, Tiger is basically dead. And this dog is just fucking gnawing. At, like it knew where to go. It knew how to immediately kill him. And Tiger is dead. And it's completely fucked. Amber and Pat drive the dog away. This is so fucking cool. So they realize they accidentally knock one of the microphones near into one of the speakers, causing feedback. The dogs freak out. So they use that feedback to scare the dogs back out of the box. Yeah. Reese escapes through a window only to be stabbed to death by Alan. <laughs> Pat, Amber, and Sam retreat to the green room. So only two members of the band are left and the friend of the girl who was stabbed are left and they're back in the green room. 
Daniel arrives and Darcy sends him in to kill the remaining survivors, claiming they murdered Emily, his girlfriend. So Dan- Daniel's a new character, but, you know, he's basically put the word out to, like, all his, like, loyal skinhead soldiers to be like, there's people in here, they've killed our girl Emily, we need you to come in. Um, for some reason at this point, he's like, no guns, only knives, try not to hit the bone. Like, it's the most fucked up thing. <laughs> so they go in with these massive fucking machetes to try and kill them, right? Mm. But once they get in, when he talks to them, Amber explains that Worm, one of Darcy's henchmen, murdered Emily after discovering she and Daniel were planning to leave the skinhead life. Daniel agrees to help them escape. What are the good bits of the skinhead life? (laughs) Like community? Community? (laughs) Okay. I'm not like I'm not trying to sell the skinhead life to well, anyone. I don't know, but, but you make a good. That's eh, interesting, man. Lots, it, lots to in think about. In the same way, and in and in the same way, I'm not shitting on anyone who's like a hardcore Christian. But the way they get you is they look for vulnerable people, mm. either in high school or uni, who are feeling a bit alone, and you go, "Hey, do you want to join a super cool club where everyone's friendly and everyone loves you, and you'll immediately have friends?" And they sort of alienate them from their existing, yeah, from their existing um, uh, base, yeah. Yeah, and look, I'm not a big believer in the patriarchal idea that every single person needs a strong father figure. But in this film, there's there's the implication that Darcy is very much a father figure to a lot of his, like, king mm. henchmen. Mm. And that is communicated, you know, subtly through the film because it's quite a well-made film. Now, so Daniel at this point realizes what's going on, agrees to help them escape, and goes back into the bar and he's like, hey, I remember we've actually got a fucking shotgun in the bar. He goes to get it, but at this point, the bartender shows up and is like had gotten in there first with the shotgun shoots daniel in the face a very oh. realistic shot I've, i i looked up online a couple of reviews of this and i thought you were gonna say you looked up online like a bunch of were getting shot in the yeah, face like, and and I, I, like, I compared them and it looks you know, you know what there's a bunch of films there's a bunch of videos and sites you can go to where it's like what are all the guns in a film and how realistic were they i was just reading a review of this film where someone was like it's a very realistic shotgun wound to the face so so Daniel gets shot in the face by a shotgun close range. It's completely fucked. <sighs> but Pat manages to kill the bartender and the group takes his shotgun only to find themselves confronted by the full skinhead force because they go outside and there's just like a crowd of people. So they have to go back in. So at this point, Sam mortally wounds Clark's dog with a shotgun before it kills her. And Amber is shot as she and Pat once again retreat to the green room. So Pat, like, like they are just completely fucked. Pat has basically like a torn up arm. Amber's been shot. They're the only ones left and they're back in the green room again. So <sighs> this is the third time they're trapped in the green room. With the sun rising soon, Darcy has most of the skinheads disperse, taking Clark and Alan with him to stage the band's deaths to make it look like they were killed while trespassing on his property. Gabe prepares to clean up the bar while Jonathan and Carl are dispatched with the dogs to finish off Pat and Amber, who formulate a plan for the last stand. Now, first of all, Pat shaves his head and like puts on some clothes so he looks like a skinhead in the bar, which is super cool. They again use microphone feedback to scare off the dog before Pat lures Jonathan into the drug lab. As Kyle stands watch in the green room, Amber emerges from under the cushions of the couch. This is actually super cool. Ambushes him, cutting his throat with the box cutter. So she's not only now sliced someone's chest open to kill them, she's now cut someone's throat with the box cutter. Pat and Jonathan fight, and Amber sneaks up and shoots Jonathan in the head. So that's her third (laughs) murder in this film. Oh, my God. Gabe enters the green room to find his companions dead and surrenders to Pat and Amber. So they hold Gabe at gunpoint, they walk him back out and there's this moment where it's now daylight and they're like, wow, you are way less scary in the day. It's like a really good moment. It's a very meta moment, but it's so true. They trek through the woods. As they near Darcy's house, 
Pat and Amber decide to go after him, while Gabe, who's now sort of like, he's like, I'm not going to do anything. Like, I'll help you guys. He goes to a nearby farm to call the authorities. But of course, once he emerges into the daylight, he just sort of disappears. Like, there's a scene where we see him later on just sort of disappear into the world, put his hands in his pocket and be like, I'm just going to disappear and pretend nothing happened. So Pat and Amber kill Clark and Alan before confronting Darcy. Darcy turns around to flee and starts pulling a revolver out, but he's shot dead. First he's shot in the chest, then the leg, and then as he turns around to pull his gun, he's shot one final time in the head. There's a big spurt of blood and brains as he falls down dead, and then they're finally free. So it ends with both Pat and Amber sitting down on the side of the road. They get really tense as they see one of the attack dogs slowly walk up the road but it walks quietly past them and then sits down next to its dead owner, just like really sadly as dogs do. Because, you know, during the film, we know that they're not just like attack dogs. They're loyal attack dogs who are are quite loved by their owner. So anyway, so Pat and Amber at the end of the film are just sitting down on the side of the road. There are just dead bodies all around them. Pat turns to Amber, who's now killed like four or five people, and is like... I think I finally know who my who my <laughs> desert island band is. And she goes, tell someone who gives a shit. And that's the end of the film. Oh, man. It's such a good ending, right? Because it's like been like two points before that where they've asked about the, they asked about the desert island bands or whatever. And then he both times doesn't know what to answer. And then he's like, I finally got it. And also you kind of feel like maybe they've like, there's like some sort of romantic feelings between them or something like growing <laughs> from this thing. And then they're just like, she's just like, tell someone who gives a fuck. Oh. But a happy oh, ending man. though. Like again, like we've done a couple of these happy ending, mm. happy endings with, um, uh, fucking catch me if you can hide and seek, get out of here. Ah, Calm down. Yeah. What's it called? Whatever it's called. Uh, ready or not. Ready or not. It's funny what qualifies as a happy ending because Pat is the last surviving member of his band. So all three of them were brutally murdered, Mm. two by like dog attacks. And Amber has lost her best friend who was stabbed in a heroin deal gone wrong. And both of them are, you know, injured, not mortally so, but injured bad enough that they'll probably be carrying the scars Mm. and potentially not moving their limbs as well as possible. And it's funny how in a film like this, you get to the end of a thrilling escape like this and you're like, yes, done. They bloody made it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Peach, what do you reckon? Green Room? Oh, I think it gets a grudging... um, 8.4 out of 10. I suspect it's very good, but it's definitely too far for me. I've just got to open the, um, the advice from the, uh, from anxiety Canada about vasovagal syncope. And there are lots of typos in here. So that sort of actually heightens the anxiety, (laughs) whether it's good or not, but there's this fucking bizarre advice where you sit in a comfortable chair, tense the muscles in your arms, legs and trunk, which I think means ass. Then for about 10 to 15 minutes, that's one word, for, <laughs> for about, about 10, 10 to 15, 15. sorry, seconds, oh, okay. you should hold the tension <laughs> until you start to feel a warm <laughs> sensation in the head. Then relax your body for 20 to 30 seconds, repeat five times. And I was like, finally the solution, but then the typos started to really bank up. And so I don't think I could ever watch this film, even if Anxiety Canada had their say. Okay, Al Grigg, host of Arvos on FBIRadio.com, also host of If These Wars Could Talk, Red Bull Radio Podcast for 
find it wherever you listen to your podcast, where you're listening to this podcast, find it there. Also in Straight Arrows, Palms. Palms have a new record out called Intensity Sunshine that's sick. Out like there's so much. If there's one thing you would like people to check out from you, what should they check out? Oh, from me? Oh, mm. um, from you. Oh, just, yeah, check out the new Palms EP because, you know, I wrote all the songs and I'm proud of it. And, you know, like, <laughs> I feel like of all the things I do, like making music is actually my favorite, favorite thing. And, and you know, that's the closest thing to my uh, heart or whatever. So, yeah, uh, check out Palms Intensity Sunshine if you have 12 minutes. <laughs> we say, hey, yo, you know we're back on our J-O. Tell me, how could I say no? Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?